Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is Wednesday, October 25th. We are recording this on Sunday the 22nd. And so, as always, big disclaimer, especially in these times, that if news breaks and makes everything irrelevant, we will most likely just change the episode. There may be a few, oh, I don't know what the right word is, hanging chads. Like that seems to be, <laughs> I feel like that's not a reference that people under the age of 30 understand. I was going to say, that's too old for... <laughs> yeah. What is the what is the cu- age cutoff for knowing the term hanging chads? Yeah, probably like late 20s. No, later I than I would say 32. 32. Yeah, I think that's about right. That voice you heard yeah. is Rosie Ali. She is a <laughs> contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine and uh, a repeat guest on our show, somebody that Tammy and I very much admire and like. And she has come on today. We're going to talk a bit about, uh, well, we're going to talk about a bunch of things, I think, but I think the main focus of it, if there is a organizing principle, is to talk about this question of what the response to the response has been to what is happening in Israel and Gaza, and um, with some specific focus on the media, because I think that there are certain things that at least Tammy and I in particular you know, are not particularly qualified or at least would not be the most illuminating thing to discuss in this. But the media, I think, is something that we do understand, having both worked in it a long time. And we're very happy to have Rosie here with us, who does have other insights into this conflict. But um, we're just we're going to talk about this. And then I think we might spread out and talk about a little bit more. But Rosie, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay, so There have been, um, I want to just start off by reading off a list of things that have happened. This is by no means a comprehensive list, but this is within the United States, sort of incidents that have taken place that other people have noticed that have perhaps, that can, I think, be classified under um, a broad rubric of like freedom of speech or chilling effect or however you want to put it. Retaliation. Retaliation, right. So... The first thing that happened, this is something that I felt like I was a, maybe one of the few people who noticed this, but it actually ended up being quite a big deal, was that a Philadelphia 76ers beat writer for a website called Philly Voice was fired for a tweet um, you know, expressing support mm-hmm. with the people of Palestine. Uh, Samira Nasser, who was the editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar, uh, had a Instagram post in which she wrote, cutting off water and electricity to 2.2 million civilians. This is the most inhuman thing I've ever seen in my life. She put that on an Instagram story, I believe. And then later she apologized after quite a bit of uh, outcry. There is a very well-publicized incident with Harvard students, right, um, who are speaking out. Uh, Their faces were put on a billboard truck, which Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is, but it was paraded around Harvard Square. I think that most people probably saw like the there was like a photo of it that was going around where like everybody was blurred out, like the photos were blurred out. But that's the one I saw. But then I actually mm-hmm. saw the original there was video as well. Too. Right. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen, who has been on our show. Right. Uh, he had an event that was with Min Jin Lee. Has Min Jin been on our show? She has yeah. not. Um uh, and that was canceled at the 92nd Street Y. I will say that kind of that one surprised me. It was uh, it was canceled very last second. Um, there was mm-hmm. some outcry that one did from. Did not the, surprise me. You know that was <laughs> postponed. I think is the official explanation, right? It was postponed, but then uh, Viet went and did it any uh, anyway at McNally Jackson, and 
Um, you can read it. We'll put a link to the Times story about that. And then overriding all this is the fact that more than 20 journalists, I think 23 at this point is the official count, mm-hmm. have been killed. That is a little, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists, which is the source I think that, you know, a place like Washington Post, New York Times uses. Now, that is a different story, right? But there is sort of a media story within this that I think we can talk about. And so um, I just wanted to start out just by asking, and I promise the rest of the conversation will not be this formal. I just wanted to sort of give us, <laughs> get us to a starting point. Like, do we feel like this is a moment, like a chilling moment in terms of free expression and ways in which people can express different thoughts within the media? Yes. I mean, I I have never felt such a uh, backlash to coverage or to opinions or to even sharing information that kind of challenges the, you know, you're with us or against us narrative. And I have been hearing it from almost everyone, from journalists, from activists, from just even also like social media influencers, just people feel a strange and unique sense of being uh, shut out of the conversation. And everyone alludes to the McCarthy era um, and whatever analogies, you know, can often be misleading. But I do think that that analogy captures something chilling that's been happening. Tammy, what do you think? Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think, you know, right after 9-11, the three of us were pretty young and we weren't working as professional journalists. And so I think, you know, we to we can't compare that on a personal basis. I would imagine that some very similar things are happening. I mean, I remember reading about everything that was happening at very left-wing publications after 9-11, where there was this sort of battles of like, you know, how should we represent what it means to be attacked as Americans and the war on terror and all that. And I think there's probably a reprisal of that, but I just from friends in the media and then through the organizing we've been doing at the National Writers Union, we're just hearing about a ton, a ton of retaliation, direct and I would say implied, where organizations are basically preempting any sort of conflict, kind of extinguishing people's you know, um, expression on social media before the fact as well. Right. Social media is the difference between 2001 and 2023, right? Which is that I think that if there was a chilling effect in 20, perhaps part of the reason we didn't feel it, even though I was 21 years old, I think on, yes, I was 21 years old. Mm -hmm. And um, if I had had a Twitter account, I would absolutely be saying something. I actually don't know what I would have been saying at that moment because it was 22 years ago or whatever. (laughs) But, you know, I think that I had no access to anything any type of larger platform. Mm-hmm. Um, but now everybody can say anything, right? And even if I had, even if it had been like, let's say ten, eight years in the future, let's say that there's a 23-year-old version of me that instead of uh, going to graduate school and playing poker had decided to go work in the media, like I would not have had an opportunity to speak through that platform, right? Like if I was an editorial assistant, for example, at like the New Yorker or something like that, they're not going to let me write <laughs> write an article, <laughs> Especially since the web didn't exist really back then, right? And so, um, it. <laughs> but I think you might a- have experienced something similar. Like you could have been the twenty-one-year-old fact checker, and then you sort of question, like, "Oh, do we have to come out and say this about 
Muslims <laughs> and then you, you could have been fired. You know, I feel like there right, was that, right, but, but right. yeah, I think exactly what you're saying in terms of like, we didn't have just run of the mill, lower ranking people being able to say like, I stand with Palestine. Right. Right. I, what I, my Publicly. larger point was more that like, I think there was more opportunity or that the default would be that nobody Definitely. would really know what you thought anyway, yeah. you know, whereas now there is an ex such an expectation for people to say something i don't think that it's necessarily so overwhelming like i've meant i've managed to not say anything about this on social media you know tammy has been run off social media and so she hasn't said anything <laughs> about it <laughs> yeah. it's for the best um i i feel like we shouldn't you know like we should try and be somewhat fair i fair is such a loaded word about this but we should try and assess what the how the coverage has been in the mainstream press. And here I'm really just talking about, you know, the places that set the table for everybody else, right? Which is basically the big newspapers and some of the cable news, right? Like people will be like, well, more people watch cable news, but the cable news, those people all take their they're reading in the, in the mainstream papers, right? So, um, I mean, except for Fox News, but, you know, like MSNBC is just transcribing the New York Times, basically. And so... Like yeah. what? Like what's an honest assessment? Do you feel like of the way in which this conflict has been, or this war has been has been covered to date? Right. I think that those assessments change over time. Right. But I mean, have you have you been pleasantly surprised? Have you been, um, you know, baffled? Have you been confused? Have you, you know, like what? What is your general assessment of it, Rosie? Yeah. I mean, I I think. So the first few days were kind of were disappointing uh, for a reason related to what we've talked about earlier, which is that I think a lot of the mainstream press just didn't have enough sources on the ground in Gaza to cover to cover it well, and so they were scrambling. Um, you know, there was really good coverage and needed coverage of the massacre in Israel, um, but I didn't get that same level of intimate stories from Gaza. I think that's shifted over the past week, thankfully. Um, I will say um, Mona Chalabi, who is a, um, um, what do you call them? <laughs> like a data journalist? A data journalist. That's the yeah. word. Right. <laughs> She's a data journalist for the New York Times. And she kind of put together this um, graph looking at coverage of, you know, civilian deaths in Israel and Gaza versus the actual death toll. And it was shockingly disparate. Um, huh. And I think it just kind of also shows that even though it has gotten better over the last two weeks, there's still, there's still, you know, these sometimes perhaps entrenched biases that still need to be reckoned with. Hey, Tammy, what do you think? Like, well, how, how do you how do you feel like the coverage has been? I mean, I, it's funny what I was thinking about. Uh, I was analogizing it to what happens in the U.S. after uh, a shooting or after some sort of pol big police misconduct story, where. I think a lot of the times, the first few days, you only get the cops perspective because those are the people who are ready to go with the story. They got a package. They have the PR people. It's the easiest story to report. And then only slowly does do further truth start trickling out as you get to the harder sources. And like the, the Gaza situation is like a super exaggerated form of that where 
as Rosie was saying, to begin with, like the sourcing is limited. And then people like Rosie are going through this calculus of like, oh my God, are my sources even alive? Is it really the best use of their time to be talking to me on the phone? Can I reach them? Do they even have food or internet to be able to talk to me? Um, and language barriers and stuff, which are more pronounced with Gaza than with Israel, like so many things that are kind of working against that. But I do think despite all of those challenges, both to the credit of journalists who are inside Gaza and risking their lives to put it out. And because I think the mainstream media had a little bit of a kick in the ass, like, what are we doing here? There's a lot of our people who are reading and consuming us who also want to know what's going on inside Gaza from Gazan people. Um, Things got better because they had to. And I'm sure that's also due to fights that were had internally in these organizations where journalists were speaking up and probably risking their jobs to do so. So I think I I, I have seen some of the big newspapers and magazines kind of change. I'm, I think I'm less familiar with the cable stuff, except for kind of what I see floating up once in a while through social media links. I have not even turned on cable news for this. Me neither. Um, but, yeah. Not once. Yeah, not once. I mean, but you got, we see it though, right? Like the clips, I guess, is how we all consume that generally. I yeah. don't know. No, I, I'm not even really seeing those, you know? It's, okay, uh, yeah. Um, no, I, I agree with both of you. I think that uh, it's gotten better. And um, and I think that there's a lot of theorizing about you could, that one can do about why, which is like, well, did everyone learn from uh, WMDs and did everyone learn from Iraq War? I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I don't. I think that a lot of people who are working in these institutions weren't working in those institutions back then. You know, um, I just think that uh, it is because you know there's just so many more different types of outlets, and I also think that mm-hmm. there's much more skepticism generally now than there was before, and it sort of forces people into. Uh, different types of positions that might be good or might be bad. Um, Mm -hmm. Rosie, you know, you have a lot of experience reporting from this region. um, And you, I think that you more than me or Tammy can understand some of the challenges that journalists might have covering, uh, you know, just getting any type of news from inside of Gaza. Like, can you, can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I've only been to the West Bank and when I have tried going to Gaza, I was not allowed to. Um, so over the past two weeks, I've just been like trying to connect with people who I sort of know or have been connected to. And uh, I want, as a reporter, to talk to them and to get their stories out. But I'm facing an ethical issue, which is that they have limited electricity, they have limited food, limited water, and they are being bombarded. <laughs> and so I... It's really hard for me to tell them, hey, tell me about your day. What are you going through? You know, what's Mm -hmm. been happening when they don't even know, they literally do not even know if they're going to wake up tomorrow. Or if they have limited electricity, they want to be able to understandably talk to their relatives, their family members. And I will say, like, I'm so, so grateful for the news stories that have come out from Gaza, I do think that New Yorker and New York Times, they, they've actually, Washington Post, they've put out some good stuff over the last few days. I don't know where, where how much to push people. That's the ethic, ethical struggle I'm facing right now as a journalist. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's very, I, maybe if we were all younger in our careers, we would just blow through that with the sort of narcissism of the world must know, you know, but... <laughs> Once you're a certain age and you've done enough of this, you realize 
that um, that even in positions like this, that there are judgment calls that you have to make um, and that you can't be consumed by your own narcissism of, you know, that can easily be wrapped up in a idea of like, you know, truth to power or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. I think that it's something that a lot of people I hope are struggling with in the same way that, that you are, you know, um, I imagine there's some people who aren't, and I imagine there's some people who are completely paralyzed by it, you know? Um, but yeah. you know, it's, mm. it, it's always like a struggle. I, I, you know, that suggests this thing that I've been thinking about quite a bit, Rosie, I'm really curious about your thoughts about it, right? Which is this idea of whether or not there is a deepening fracture between how the public views these institutions and how they think about them, right? Um, Congress being one, the media being the other, right? That um, I've been wondering if there is a now just basically a, oh, we don't believe, and this has been happening for years, obviously, right? But if this is another fracture point where there's a deep distrust of anything that, you know, Washington, D.C. or the mainstream media is going to do, and it is so deep amongst young people that it's like they don't even bother at this point. You know, it's like the people who like sit and scream at the New York Times every single day on Twitter, (laughs) right? Like that's a thing, right? The New York, if the New York Times wasn't on Twitter, then like a lot of people on Twitter have nothing to talk about because all they do is complain about the New York Times. Those people are millennials, right? Like those people are in their late thirties and early forties. A lot of them have kids, right? Um, Younger people, I think, have no real like they don't even care at some level, right? Um, but there is like this weird thing where there is a disengagement almost, right? That people really do feel like they can find the exact thing that they want outside of it. And I just wonder if this is another fracture point um, in that, right? Like where there's just such deep distrust now and that basically people have given up on hoping, trying to reform these institutions at all. Hmm. Yeah, Uh, That is a really good question. Um, I am not going to pretend I know, but I will say, I will talk about like some of the things I'm seeing, um, which might explain a part of this question. One, as you said, you know, this kind of distrust of institutions has been happening for a long time. And I think that's across the board. One of the interesting discrepancies between 9-11 and now is that I think widely Americans, despite the intelligence failure, Americans kind of trusted their government to, you know, fix it, to to get the bad guys. And right. they trusted the media to cover it. Um, that trust has eroded over the last 20 years for various reasons. Um, I think there are more people who want to, who are willing to say, yeah, we're going to, we're going to fix this ourselves. Um, obviously, As we've discussed, social media um, plays a huge role now, uh, especially because, you know, mainstream media, New York Times especially, has constantly been criticized, uh, and rightly so, for not being balanced on Israel-Palestine. That said, what's been happening over the past two weeks, uh, not even just the past two weeks, but Twitter has, or what was formerly known as Twitter, has been disintegrating. It's really, really hard to use that as a platform now to actually exchange information in a in an engaging way that we used to, um, Instagram and Facebook have been filtering, um, right? Uh, you know, posts about Gaza. Um, I think there is a sense of 
trying to reclaim any sort of platform, including these institutions that are distrustful, right? And, and I do think there is an effort to push some of these institutions, some of these media organizations we're all familiar with, towards more balanced coverage. I actually, I don't know, I mean, it's too early to say, but I'm kind of feeling heartened by, I, I think this might actually lead to a bit more trust of mainstream, only because I think mainstream media is being forced to kind of reckon with their blind spots and just bias. Right. It, but it's like, it's also like, okay, so we have this uh, hospital tragedy, yeah. right? And immediately it's like, oh, these mainstream media outlets or mainstream media journalists are, it's either at the beginning, it's like people criticizing for being using guarded language about what happened. And then after, you know, whatever report came out, right, then it was other the other side blasting specific journalists for tweeting about it and then like both sides it's like well the it's because the mainstream media is lying you know um we also saw that throughout all of black lives matter in the united states right like every single protest it was like oh oh you said that there was like a riot here right or that businesses were burned but that didn't really happen right and then it turns out that some were right (laughs) the other side is like well look at these fires right um and that it feels like there's so much pressure on both sides in a way. And I do understand, you know, when I was at the times, we had a very strict social media policy and I actually understood it in a way. And I actually like kind of quietly supported it, even though, you know, my main thing is like, don't tell me what to do, like free speech. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of surprised. What did this say? But I, but I understood it because it's like the amount of headspace that that social network takes up in journalist brains and the amount of pressure on both sides, it squeezes you towards like a random middle, right? It doesn't squeeze you towards the truth. It certainly doesn't squeeze you towards like a centrist position on everything. It doesn't, it just pushes you randomly and then you end up (laughs) somewhere, you know, and like you have no idea where it's taking you. It's like a riptide or something like that. We're like, Oh, I guess I'm just going to go somewhere. You know, like I've had that happen. Well, out surfing or swimming the ocean where you get caught in a riptide and you're like, I have no idea where this thing's taking me. Like, that's what it's like, right? You just have these currents taking you into a random position. And I just feel like right now, Rosie, I agree with you. Like the Twitter is like, it is wild right now, you know? Um, But I actually still think that that's probably better. Like, I almost feel like it's it's better in just that it shows what the problem is here, right? And, um... I just am a little bit more skeptical that these outlets are can actually resist just getting taken swept away by it because in the last 10 years they've shown no ability to to resist yeah. that at all. You yeah, know? no, I, I agree. I mean I think so I, I think there are two two really big problems uh regarding media in this conflict, like structural problems. One is that mainstream media is trying to compete with social media, the speed the speed of it right so they're like doing constant updates so when with that hospital um hospital bombing i think there was this this need to be constantly updating with what they were hearing from intelligence officers or from what israel was saying or what, what the um mm-hmm. you know Gazan authorities were saying but so there was a lot of back and forth um but that brings me to the second problem which is worse is it's the fact that, you know, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, 
20, 20 plus journalists have been killed in the last two weeks. There are no foreign journalists allowed in Gaza. Mm-hmm. None. Yeah. Zero. Um, in the West Bank, it's getting harder to get access. And so during, just to back up a bit, during the um, U.S. pullout of Afghanistan in August 2021, it was a fiasco, a huge fiasco. Mm-hmm. There was an airstrike in Kabul that ended up killing over, I think, a dozen civilians. The New York Times and Washington Post and other media organizations were able to figure that out. They were able to investigate and get to the bottom of it by using satellite imagery and because they had reporters on the ground who could talk to eyewitnesses mm-hmm. and actually get the story. That is not happening here. We don't have that kind of access. And right. you know, one of the reasons for actually having a ceasefire um, beyond, obviously, because we need to save civilians, is also because we can actually start covering this conflict in a, yeah. in a more meaningful, probably helpful way. We're just all talking and getting out information right now, which is useful, but we are all struggling yeah. to comprehend what's happening. Yeah, um, no, I mean, I I agree, although I do think that that leads in a way back to this conversation around um Yes, I think like the sort of war and humanitarian contours should be that simple to everybody, but also like to understand, like to the to get the historical and political context. Yeah. Obviously, like that part is hard. Yeah, and, like, it is. You know, yeah, it and is. that takes study. And like, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about with that stuff. And you know, and we're all kind of catching up. And um, but yeah, definitely, I think in terms of the the contours of power, the military story here, it should be so simple. the The journalistic part, I think that also worries me in addition to all the stuff you said, Rosie, is that what that sets up with only the surviving journalists in Gaza doing this reporting right now is like, first of all, like I think now 60 media buildings, media offices have been destroyed, you know, perhaps deliberately, perhaps just because so much of Gaza has been destroyed by the Israelis. Um, And so their infrastructure just to get stories out obviously is like so limited, but it sets up this information asymmetry where then all of the reporting and journalistic and sort of PR infrastructure on the Israeli side is completely intact. Mm, yeah, and like, yeah. right. And they are so obviously they have every other kind of power, but, but I've just been thinking about that, that like all of the reporters, all of the regular sort of news and media stuff in Israel is operating like fine, like normal, probably, you know, in, in more like, you know, geared up than ever. And of course there are incredible journalists there who have been doing, um, you know, very fair and, and good reporting. But anyway, to the extent that a lot of journalists are reflecting the Israeli governmental standpoint and only getting that material. Like I, I just worry so much about that. Um, just mirroring the, every other asymmetry that exists in this conflict. Yeah, totally. And I, I think that um, Israel, I read that today um, is thinking about blacklisting Al Jazeera, um, which was very worried about that. Yeah. Yeah. Is yet again, you know, what you're saying is just kind of, you know, another media blackout. Um, Mm -hmm. One thing I did want to mention that occurred to me is there seems to be funny enough, more nuance or was more nuance in Israeli media. Um, But a lot of Israeli journalists are also now facing pushback from Mm, their government about what they're going to cover. Totally. 
So, and so imagine like, you know, the people closest to the conflict um, outside of the journalists in Gaza can't even report on it. Um, Absolutely. No, and that must be so much more intense than here, right? Right, And that way, that is the part where I feel like some some understanding of 9-11 and what, you know, like it must be that times five, right? In terms of the feeling that people have um, to just sort of toe the line and... um, and say, well, this is about security and this is about the atrocities that took place, right? Um, mm-hmm. And we must uh, be united and we must support our government, and, yeah, right. you know, despite yeah, right. it and know his flaws and all this stuff. Like that's So, Rosie, that. like before our show started, you mentioned that like everything's moving so quickly. What would you mean by that? Like, what, how are things moving so quickly on this one issue specifically? Well, I mean, it's just like for first, it's just the information that we're that's emerging from the ground. Um, every piece of information seems to basically just justify someone's stance right and like any single Mm. thing that happens in gaza in the west bank in israel uh more information coming out of uh about the hamas massacre you will just see twitter explode you will just see like all these thought pieces just come up overnight um but i think what that does is also just kind of like continuously just shift the conversation over and over and over again. Like in the last 10 days, we've, you know, in the US mainly, we've gone from like talking about grief to now being focused on how do we properly condemn? How do we, what does solidarity look like? Let's parse through each statement that's that's being put out. Like all right. of these, these shifts, um, I do think that a change in conversation that is happening, that is very important is, you know, Jay, what you were asking about at the beginning is this chilling, the the dissent, a chilling of dissent that's been happening. And I'm really actually heartened to see people talking about it more. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do think that I agree with you that every bit of information that comes out, every video that comes out does sort of shift things. But it feels like it's within a very small radius, right? Um, that now you had mentioned that there was a forensic report of the massacres in southern Israel, right? Um, and that came out, I think, yesterday. And it's horrifying to read, right? Like truly horrifying to read. Yeah. Um, we, we have an endless stream of videos. I will say that like, you know, like I'm very desensitized to watching violence uh, just because there was a period of time where um, I watched a lot of it for work, you know, like a lot of ISIS training videos, stuff like that, or recruitment videos. And came, but the, you know, this nonstop procession of dead children is like, I think it is deeply traumatizing to everyone who is watching it and the world is watching it right at once. Um, and then you have these footages of the, from this weekend of these huge protests, right? These huge protests all over the world. You have, mm-hmm. I mean, I shared this with Ta- Tammy. It was, uh, you know, Islam Makachev, who is like one of, the, one of the best UFC fighters in the world, saying after a fight, you know, Palestine, we stand with you, right? Um, uh, and so you have these big, big, big platforms that are, you know, somehow confirming one thing or the other, like you said, right? Like for the USC thing is like, I know some USC fans, they're either really mad about it or they're like, yeah, you know, like we're right, you know? Um, and, but it always feels like it's within this tiny circle and that the, dis- that the disagreement is the same, right? And I think that the 
disagreement is basically like, do you think Israel has the right to defend itself? Or do you think that, and then there's another version of it, which I, don't, I think is not relevant to anyone, really like to most people in the United States, which is just like, oh, did you think that the massacre was justified in a type of way, right? But that yeah. question, but those questions bleed all over the place and they're applied to everybody. And, um, and you feel that are the, those are the questions that when you say they're in this circle, it's like those are the ones that everyone is implicitly required to respond to, to have an answer to? Yes. Is that what you to mean? Even, to even voice an opinion, yeah. right? Um, there's a very viral clip, very, very viral interview that Piers Morgan did with Bassem Youssef, right? And Bassem Youssef is the, I don't know how to describe him, but- They used you know, to call a, him like- the Arab Egyptian. world's John Stewart was like yeah, the classic yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 He's and an Egyptian he, comedian. Yeah. Egyptian comedian. He has a he's, Palestinian he's wife. And he, uh, at some point, he's like, Piers, I'm just going to tell you what you want to hear. I condemn Hamas. <laughs> you know, I condemn them. I condemn them. I condemn them. <laughs> exactly. Right. That that's like, oh, honestly, very quietly, I think Piers Morgan is at, like, Piers Morgan has had like, like Hassan Piker on. He's had like, you know, Bassem Youssef. I think that there's something where he is like trying to actually be kind of balanced and allow people. That whole interview, Piers Morgan didn't say a word. You know, like Bassem hmm. Youssef just talked the whole time. Well, what but what could just, he have said? <laughs> no, I know. I'm not defending <laughs> Piers Morgan. I just feel like he should get like you know when people are like, oh, he totally destroyed Piers Morgan. I was like, I don't know. Piers Morgan did have him on a show, you know. But that I think that that's the first thing you have to. That's the first question. And that you have to answer that question to even start the conversation. Does that make sense, right? Like you have to condemn everything and then you start, right? It's perfunctory. Um, yeah, certainly you see like everybody, I think craft, there's so many open letters and statements, right? Every organization has to do a statement, lots of different groups, including groups that we're part of are issuing statements. And I think in the conversations I've been in where we're crafting those, that is certainly the case. Like there is a sort of dance you have to do to check off to make sure you don't appear like a monster in the Western media, you know, um, even though it's it's kind of obvious that everybody would condemn like the killing of civilians. And, and you know, but yeah, I, I do think that's right, that in order also to have any kind of audience with the West, given like people's intimate connections to Israel in this country, I mean, that's just kind of a fact. Like right. there is this sort of thing you have to say, like, yes, the Hamas attack was like horrific. Now, can we actually have a conversation about Palestine? I don't know right. if that's a good thing, but that is what I've seen over and over I find again. It, I find it very distracting. Um, but I will also say, like, I don't think this is something that's true of the moment either. Um, it's definitely more visible and louder. But I think over the last 20 years, there was this implicit expectation uh, and not always implicit, sometimes uh, publicly verbalized <laughs> yeah. expectation uh, for Muslims to condemn the bad ones, right? Mm -hmm. Like to prove you're the good Muslim who is the citizen of the United States, who is, you know, uh, standing with the West against terrorism. Um, and that was kind of, that was a line that was repeated by politicians too. Um, you know, like prove that you're a good Muslim, help us find the bad guys. Um, and so when I hear people kind of expect us to condemn Hamas, it sounds familiar to me. Mm -hmm. But in this moment, when things are um, when things are moving so fast, when Gaza is being bombarded, it feels 
frankly uh, irresponsible to start a conversation with that. Right. Yeah, it's uh it's interesting how there's a that expectation does take up so much space, right? And it doesn't it's not just about these issues. It's also like you know, we had this horrific horrific incident where a uh Jewish woman who worked at a synagogue who seemed to have done a lot of work with Jewish and Muslim kids in Detroit was yeah. murdered. Um, and, you know, it's the type of thing that breaks your heart because, first of all, it's like a horrific incident. But it's also like the type of thing where you're just like, man, everything is just spinning out of control right now. And it seemed like there was a real expectation. And the first, per- the first way I saw it and one of the first people to really publicize was like Jamal Bowman, right? Jamal Bowman sort of came out and was like, wow, this is really bad. And then there are calls for like Rashida Tlaib to respond to it. She's responded to it like on a Facebook page, but maybe not on Twitter. And then people are mad about her response oh, not gosh. being enough. <laughs> and they're um, friends. Right. They were friends, right? And yeah. it was like uh yeah. it seemed like there was there's this like, oh, if you're gonna take this stance, you also have to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Um and it does go. Well, and one I think way. even with that women's murder, you have this feeling of like, oh, but we should also talk about the Palestinian six-year-old who was killed in Chicago. Like, you know what I mean? There's right, always this right, sort of right. we're contorting ourselves and kind of dancing to figure out how to be able to talk to each other. It, it's very hard. Right now. Yeah, it's like everybody is like checking off seven boxes and then the speech is over, you know? Like Biden, for example, mentioned this the six-year-old who was murdered by his landlord and um, yeah, um, in his speech, right? And uh, I imagine that Biden does feel horrible about that, but you know, it's it is strange how it's all processed as like, oh well, what is the accumulation of all these stances that you're taking, and what does that say about how you feel? You know, and I will say that just personally, if there is any chilling effect on me personally as somebody who you know, my job is to express my opinion, and it's uh, it's like, okay, have I checked all the boxes properly? You know, um, not because I am afraid of being canceled, but because I wonder if people will even listen if that that performance yeah, exactly. is beforehand. You know, right. like so that's that's where I think that's sort of, at least I think that's what's going on. Right. Yeah, and I I mean uh, this was reported I think by by Maxwell Tanny also, but um, you know they sent out this email to all the employees of Condé Nast. You know say and and contractors saying like you know you better watch out what you say on social media um you know this it's, in, it's sort of like going to implicitly be attributed to Condé Nast or at least be tied to your relationship to Condé Nast and you know it's 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 kind of it's like so obvious what they're trying to do but nobody will actually say it and there also aren't really concrete rules around it so i think people are terrified you know and we um, through the through the union have already heard from lots of people who have had, you know, their supervisors call them in to talk about their social media, have threatened them with termination and other sorts of retaliation. Have um, people are losing work that's like unrelated to any of these issues just because of they might something they might have retweeted. So it's it's really really frightening. Yeah. Rosie, do you feel like this is something that's going to last or do you feel like this is a flare up in the high, obviously like a highly fast moving and, you know, extremely upsetting time for a lot of people that like it might be something that people regret in a couple of weeks here? You mean the chilling effect? 
Right. Yeah. And like some of these people being fired, like some of the, you know, I know that targeting of Palestinian academics is nothing new. Right. Right. Um, But the, you know, like parading students' faces around Harvard Square is certainly like I've never seen that before. Right. Like, I mean, that just seems it seems so beyond the pale. Um, But yeah, I mean, do you think this is something that's going to last? Is it something that you worry about as a journalist Um, or do you think this is like temporary? I think I do think it's temporary. I don't know what that time frame looks like, though. You know, a year ago, things looked very, very different, uh, obviously, but in the sense that I felt just from my reporting, just from talking to people, that uh, the pro-Palestine movement was getting so much traction. We had we have so many Arab and Muslim voices in media. We have a growing left that um, is challenging, was challenging assumptions of Israel's, you know, right to defend itself and what that mm-hmm. means. Um, all of that is shifting. It has like kind of just gone by the wayside in the last two weeks. And it's very, very hard to predict what's going to happen. I have been, you know, honestly quite shocked by the level of um, just the, just how widespread this like, you know, condemnation of journalists and writers and, and uh, artists are who are trying to challenge or, or stand up for Palestine. I've been very shocked to see mm. the extent to which this has kind of um, growing. And I don't think it's going to last forever, but I do think that this conflict right now shows no sign of abetting. We're, act- we're actually at this point where it can very quickly and very easily spread to the rest of the region. Right. right. And if that yeah. is the case, I can imagine that, you know, being very critical of Israel is going to take a bit longer. That said, I will say when it came to the war on terror, right after 9-11, Journalists started doing incredible work from the get-go. I mean, they were finding they were finding, you know, evidence of like massacres by US troops. They were finding evidence of like torture by, right, right, by the CIA. Right. And like it was that was already out. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. like yeah. we were actually starting to challenge the US government's narrative quite early. And I right. do think that when journalists do have a chance to get on the ground. Um, I do, and I hope that happens soon. I do think we're going to start seeing, being able to, we will start seeing some of that narrative being challenged as well. But right. I'm curious who you guys are thinking in that context after 9-11 and whether they survived okay. Because I, I feel like some of those people who were so lucid and could see through our, you know, blinding nationalism towards war, they really struggled. Like, I'm sure I, I don't know. I'm thinking about people who were losing work and who were really sidelined. And um, yeah, did they ever recover? Like, how long did that take? Well, I don't know. It's hard to tell because it's a long time ago. I wasn't really in the media at that point. So I don't yeah, know the but answer. Ju- yeah. But I do think that probably a lot of people just didn't come back, right? Um, I know. That's kind of Sidelined yeah. there. I was curious, Rosina, because we, I think we might have talked on the show when your piece came out on Rashida Tlaib. But yeah, that was just a year ago. (laughs) And the thrust of your profile is that the consensus was changing, both like at at high level politics and in media and in the public. And yeah, now I'm kind of feeling like 
I still see the grassroots part of it continuing, you know, but it seems like those, the upper pieces have kind of been cut off. It feels like nothing has really changed there. So yeah, I guess I was curious, like what you guys think about that. Like to me, the, the force of like people's support for the Palestinian people continues and that change is market. And I don't think we're going to go back. Uh, but the way that that those voices are regulated, oh God, that just doesn't feel that different. Yeah, I agree. I do think that there's going to be a realignment uh, that we're going to see. I think on the ground, definitely like support for Palestine seems to be growing um, to different groups. Uh, you just, you know, measuring by the scale of these protests that we've been seeing nationwide. But I do think that a lot of um, political groups, like Jewish political groups in the U.S., um, they might actually start, they might shift how they decide to approach the Hill, for example, um, and who they're going to back and why. Um, Because what we saw over the last decade was really APAC turning more towards Republicans or more towards, you know, the right wing and kind of losing support from Democrats, I think we're going to see that shifting. Um, I think APAC is probably going to win a lot more Democrats now. Um, And what I mean is Democratic support on the Hill. Right. right. I do think, you know, there are just like some structural issues that were a problem before and will remain a problem. And it'll probably be more so of a problem going forward. One being that there is no Palestine rights caucus in, in on the hill, like just none. Um, so there is no actual representation yeah. for a Palestinian cause or voice. I mean, we have caucuses for everything. We have a caucus for whiskey or candy, but but not you know a Palestine caucus. And uh-huh. um, I think that just not having a group coalesce around that issue is going to be a problem. Rashida Tlaib cannot be the only one. She is not the only one. She has friends. Mm-hmm. She has, you know, some progressives. Kari Bush, right. Right. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how many of those voices survive after elections. Yeah. Yeah. That That's one question I had as well, which was just that, like, the condemnation, you know, this was one of, I would say of every moment that where I felt chilled, you know, it wasn't the media. I actually think that if you look at the inaccurate of some of the of all the coverage overall, and that also includes like, you know, things that are on YouTube or whatever, that if you look at what people's eyeballs are on, I do think it's different from 9-11. Like, I do think it is, you know, it is much more varied in, in people's sentiments and whatever, whatever slant you're going to get, right? Mm-hmm. It's much different. But the most chilling moment was when the press secretary for Biden condemned uh, anyone who was either supporting a ceasefire or anyone who sort of was like, "Whoa, let's let's not go into like a, civil, a civilian slaughter in Gaza." And there was a forcefulness of which that was said oh, man. that really was upsetting to me to watch because I didn't feel like uh, like these are not like this isn't the BLM Chicago Twitter account that like posted a paraglider right like uh this is these are members of congress who are saying let it let's avoid a civilian slaughter and like to be castigated in that type of way was in the most public way possible i wonder if 
they regret that, you know, but it did make me think that perhaps the big, the place where we'll see the most of this is in, you know, funding for different types of candidates, right? Like uh, ways in which members of Congress have supported their colleagues, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I don't know. I, I, I was, th- that part is interesting to me as well. Well, I also will say that progressives were losing support from Democratic leadership even before all of this. Right. So, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Even though they tried to like fall in line. Um, yeah. 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 Um, one thing I did want to mention, just to say, because we're, you know, we're talking about Islamophobia and like this moment um, and 9-11, and obviously there are analogy parallels to be made to 9-11. I will say that one thing that's really different and important to recognize is that anti-Muslim sentiment is not the same as anti-Palestinian sentiment. They're very much linked. They're, you know, they have fed off of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Israel-Palestine issue extends much further in American history than, you know, American, than Islamophobia in the U.S. And What's interesting um, about this moment, to me at least, is that you see both of these threads that, again, related, but they're both being kind of like distilled into this one moment. Um, and that's what where I think like it's both clarifying, but then also muddles a lot of conversation as well. I mean, I think there's this tendency sometimes to kind of view this conflict uh, it's, it becomes easy to view this conflict as like a religious war. And it's not. It is not. It's not a religious war. And that actually affects how we can talk about it in America, how people talk about it on the Hill, how pe- how media talks about it, how politicians talk about it, because there is then these like accusations of Islamophobia or anti-Semitism that get thrown around, which kind of just elides the fact that, oh, we are talking about a war and an anti-war movement. Like that, that's what I'm seeing right now. You know, yes, like Israel-Palestine politics is very messy, but what is happening right now is a war and there is a very, very strong uh, voice on the ground in the U.S. and around the world that is calling for ceasefire. It is an anti-war movement. Um, and it's it's kind of fascinating to me that not many people are acknowledging it as that. The president is not acknowledging right. it as that. Right. They they are basically saying, oh, you're taking Palestine's side on this, right? Yeah. Or you're taking Hamas's side on this. And in some ways, like there, of course, there's questions about colonialism, everything like that, right? But I would say that for 90% of the people who are showing up to these protests, it is, I can't believe how many children have been killed right um i can't believe how many dead children i've seen on my whatever on my phone right um that's very powerful you know i don't mean to minimize it by saying it that way like that is perhaps the most powerful uh message that actually can be sent out which is you know these images which uh i don't know i I think I rethought a lot of what I thought about war photography. I kind of agree to Susan Sontag where I was like, well, I don't know, you know, all I can do is really shock, but it can't help you understand. But there is also like a level of shock that is taking place right now that I think is creating its own part of the conflict where it is not just about like the individual taking in the image and processing it in this like sort of, you know, 
narcissistic way, but it is creating its own level of the conflict because the images are just so upsetting. At least, they, yeah. I mean, I don't know if everyone feels that way, but I, you know, that's just my personal experience sitting with it and people I, I talk to. I think you take in a lot of though, that too. That's just like your mode of consumption. You're always looking at a lot of images and videos. Like I am not. Oh, really? Right, okay. And, yeah. yeah. I don't like read I... is the, as everyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what I want everyone to know here. Jay does not know how to read. Um, Every, I, I wanna... <laughs> everyone who listens to this podcast already knows that I don't, <laughs> I don't read or I don't watch TV, but you know, if a video is on under... <laughs> But Jay has never seen a TikTok link he hasn't clicked on. Um, yeah, yeah, the one true. thing I was going to ask you guys, just like on that point is, I, I totally agree with you. And I think like focusing on the humanity of the people who are being killed and displaced is obviously what's most important right now. I do wonder though, if we, there, there's one way if we, if we kind of go to make it too generic and we're like, oh yeah, you know, there's just, they're all just civilians and we need to protect the civilians. Like there, there's also at least like theoretically this danger of kind of losing the thread of the ethnic cleansing and Rosine, I think you're right. And yeah, of course, like Palestine is also, also multicultural and multi-religious, and this isn't necessarily an Arabs and Muslims against Jews and Israelis type of situation. Nevertheless, the Palestinians are mostly, you know, Muslim, and they are sort of carrying the dreams of a lot of Muslim people all around the world. So that's also a part of it. So I guess I'm curious how you guys are kind of disentangling this and how you think journalists and other people should be articulating that. Because again, yes, we want to talk about civilians, keep the eye on what is most important, which is our humanity and our shared humanity in some extent, to some extent. And yet we know who this is affecting. And it is a program that is by the definition of genocide scholars, an attempted genocide, attempted ethnic cleansing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. So can you just like pick that apart a little bit for me? Yeah. You know, as soon as I said war versus anti-war, I did hesitate because that is not to ignore the political context, um, which is very, very, very important to acknowledge. And as journalists, we need to be able to talk about it. And I think that is what's being chilled being able to talk about the political and historical context. One thing <laughs> I will say, like one of the funny things, um, can you say funny? Um, yeah, you can. Uh, <laughs> about, about like the 9-11 analogies is that there's this tendency to think that the, that history starts at 9-11, that nothing happened before. And sure, that's, yeah, that's, fair enough. that's not the case, you know, and the U.S. had a 20-year occupation of Afghanistan after 9-11. There has been a 20-year occupation, more than 20-year occupation of Gaza before October 7. Very, very critical for us to acknowledge and understand what happened to Palestine. What, you know, why, yeah. why did it fracture? Why is there no political leadership? Why did Hamas become the only option, political option um, in Gaza. That's a problem. And I think, you know, the, the really dangerous thing I see happening when it comes to thinking about what's happening now is that everything just becomes refracted through this lens of national security and humanitarian crisis. And we lose, we lose any sense of what the political crisis is. 
we don't know how to have that conversation, it seems. Um, and when I say that, you know, the pro-Palestine and anti-Palestine issue is different from Islamophobia, that's what I'm referring to. I don't think as a country, we have really been able to not just acknowledge, but actually like dissect and engage with the political question regarding Palestine. And the over the last 40, 40 years, you know, we just, we don't really engage with it in the media. And we, we talk about it usually often through the lens of military or humanitarian crises. Or, and, or like celebrities. You or know? celebrities, yeah. yeah. And, and I think mm-hmm. it was very telling when the first week in the days after, I think a lot of media organizations were scrambling to figure out how to cover Gaza. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, because they're just not used to covering it. That's the pro- That's a problem. That's been a huge problem. It is interesting because there was a period of time where every journalist who was hired at a place probably had a working knowledge of the conflict, right? Because it was such a large part of the international mm-hmm. conversation. And also journalists talked much more about international conflict back yeah. then i think like in right? the 90s I mean, even yeah yeah in the 90s right mm-hmm. that's ex- like that's specifically but in the past 30 years it seems like um there's been and everyone had their own opinion on things like two-state solution whatever right these sort of ideas and you're familiar with uh places like j street or whatever right and that you sort of right. understood the landscape of it quite well and now i think that if you had asked before this conflict to a lot of journalists, and I am not saying this in any type of pejorative sense to anybody, because I certainly was not an expert on this at all. Still, I'm not. But you know, like, what's the difference between the West Bank and Gaza? Right? That it would have, you know, it would have been very difficult for a lot of people to understand. I agree with you, Rosie. I think that there was a way in which our industry was caught a bit flat-footed, mm-hmm. um, and that uh, that everyone was kind of learning at the same time, right? Um, and that the history of it was muted. Now, I do think it's like, uh, Tammy, what I was saying basically was not to ignore the politics of it or to ignore the history of it. What I was trying to say is that it is, I think, for the people who are watching this every night on the news and the people who are support, you know, going out and saying ceasefire or whatever, that they are, that they are responding in an anti-war, anti-violence type of way. Um, and that yeah. the majority yeah, of them, I think, especially here in the United States, but I think also probably Western Europe or whatever, that that is the majority of people. And then you have like the occasional idea like, oh, well, why are the protests so big in Ireland, right, for example? <laughs> and that's like the type of thing that leftists love to talk about, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, the anti-colonial struggle, yeah, yeah. The international, multiracial, <laughs> uh, worldwide anti-colonial struggle like i don't okay first of all it did look in some of these irish towns there's like 12 people out there you know but but, but that type of processing I it would is say, very is, touching right it's much I mean, smaller you know i i texted tammy i was like where are the koreans you know like, <laughs> like um, the koreans are the koreans if you know i, I would Do think the koreans that, um, condemn hamas that's the question. Koreans, <laughs> right. Yeah. The Koreans the as a whole. The world wants to know. <laughs> I, I wonder. I actually look, look, I mean, I think that, you know, I bet Korea as the country would, you know, but I look, I know some, <laughs> I know some, old, I know some had... old Korean men who have some very problematic views on the world. I don't know what they oh, would God. say. But, um, 
that's the, that's the sort of framing where I feel like, like, okay, but that's missing what most people are responding to. Do you, you guys know? think that um, with the, the divergence, like, like I think offline, we've talked a little bit about the divergence between kind of what maybe the Bidens of the world thought people wanted and what people actually want. And, you know, if we think about like with the swing states like Michigan, um, you know, there's been some kind of commentary or speculation on will the Arab vote turn against Biden, right? Because he's been so vicious in his commentary against Gaza. Um, I'm curious what you guys think about that. Did Biden overshoot in being so cruel in his alignment with Israel? And is it going to hurt him next year? Well, it's shifted a little bit, right? At the beginning, it was... And now he's sort of talked like they, he sent, so he said, we're sending humanitarian aid and it, right. That was this morning. Yeah. But yeah, is it, but is of, it no, no, I, I, but that's no, also no, I'm like not very saying minuscule. that, right, right. I'm not saying that this is not a reflection of anything. I am just tracking the way in which the rhetoric has yeah. changed. No, from I know. One Cause he's now. adjusting, yeah. right? Yeah. He is adjusting. Um, yeah. Jay, Rose, the yeah, Biden yeah. defender. This is like, <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, yeah. I also just, I just, <laughs> I just think it's also funny to say like, okay, we're going to, you know, pass out some water bottles to about 20,000 people, but then also supply like Israel unlimited weapons to kill (laughs) like 10,000. Like it it doesn't, it's illogical. I do think that Biden overshot. I actually, I mean, who knows? I don't know. I haven't talked to White House people, but I think that he probably didn't expect Netanyahu to go as hard as he has been on Gaza, which mm. honestly is a profound misunderstanding as well of Israel-Palestine politics. I, I but I do I mean, I will say that Biden misunderstood what what Netanyahu the situation was and when Netanyahu yeah. would be shaped by. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think probably everyone was thinking it would be like what happened in 2021 in Gaza, where you had right. some airstrikes, a few days, a few thousand people. Sorry, I actually don't know how many people died. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it stopped after a few days. This is relentless. And this has gotten to a point where uh, it's not just uh, endless bombardment and this, you know, cruel like scenario. But it is what most people seem to see now or acknowledge is that it's going to be a redrawing of the map. Mm-hmm. Not, I don't know, like many experts are questioning whether Gaza will stay Gaza. Those lines are going to shift. And that mm-hmm. is frankly catastrophic. It is already catastrophic. That has been a, this is a rewriting of world map. Mm. Rosie, were you were you surprised by the polling results that came out? You know, I don't, I wasn't, uh, you know, that showed that basically the country is pretty split, uh, mostly by age, right? That of young people, I think between 34 and 18, it's something like only 18 or so percent, um, maybe 20 something percent support sending more uh, arms to Israel, right? That... Um, once you get to an older demographic, it's pretty, it's, it's much more support for Israel, but still like overall the polling, at least to me, was pretty surprising in terms of how split it was. Right. Um, I was expecting much more support for Israel. Yeah. I mean, just given the rhetoric, I was Mm -hmm. actually surprised that more people weren't saying let's continue, you know, let's continue bombing. (laughs) 
I will say what the number that did surprise me and dishearten me is the polling of, uh, I think it was split like half, half about uh, the number of people who don't agree with um, sending humanitarian aid into Gaza. Wow. And that's wild. That's wild. And, And I think that is that just really reflects um, the toxicity of the rhetoric because you're essentially, like, it's come to the point where Americans are now believing that civilians in Gaza don't deserve the right to food, water, maybe not even the right to live. I mean, that's essentially what Americans are saying. And that's frankly disturbing to me. Um, I, 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 I know, I guess I should try to be optimistic and focus on like the good parts of the poll, but when I saw that stat, it's like if half the country believes that civilians should not be saved, that's uh, that just makes <sighs> makes it seem as if there's appetite for it to continue in some way. Or right. Another. Right. Um, those numbers, I think, are indicate they are the part that is interesting to me is that they are not reflective of what we're hearing. Um, from the Democratic yeah. Party, and they're right. not reflective of even what we're hearing from the Republican Party. And I actually think that's why things are shifting. You know, the mm-hmm. rhetoric okay. is shifting. Yeah. And that part actually is depressing to me, right? That a couple polls could come out. Who that's knows what these polls are? The opportunism opinion, of the, right, right. Right. Opinion polls are garbage almost all of the time, right? And yet uh, <laughs> enough of these have come out where I feel like it's really sort of changed the way in which things are doing, except in the fundamental part, right? Which is that the arms are still going out, right? Yeah. And like, um, but at least the rhetoric, I guess, is changing. But, you know, it's even yeah. the question yeah. is then asked, like, well, why does that matter, right? Like outside of people not getting mad and tweeting at the press secretary, the president. or Well, it matters because our government is directly responsible for what's happening, right? I I mean, there is a resolution on the table in the House to call for an immediate ceasefire. And I think only, but it's only like 20 Congress people. Right, 3%, yeah. That's Mm -hmm. insane. I'm, I'm, that's shocking to me. Right. The, it, the difference between 67% of the public and what right. amounts to, I think, like 3% of, you know, Congress and Senate. Yeah. And it's yeah. for a ceasefire. It's not, you know. It's, it's for a ceasefire. <laughs> right. That's the thing. It's not even for saying, oh, let, let have, let's have Gaza, like, not be a prison anymore. Right. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's not even about any political question. It's just to stop the bombardment. Um, And I think this is what has been so chilling for me to witness Mm -hmm. over the past week is that there is a refusal to see those issues as separate. Because Mm -hmm. I would think that even if you did not want to engage on the political question of Israel and Palestine, you could at least engage on the question of bombardment. That's I'm just astounded that after 20 years of the war on terror, of failing, of everyone recognizing that you cannot get a political solution with, you know, military, uh, we're doing it all over again. Yeah. I just wanted to, uh, on a slightly different topic, uh, just to talk about Trump very, very quickly. I will just say that, you know, Trump was oh, called no. the most uh, Islamophobic <laughs> president and like, obviously he introduced yes. the Muslim ban. I have never seen, um, uh, Arab and Muslim and South Asian friends, employees across the board, various industries, 
be as scared as they are now. Like almost everyone I talk to mm. say they just feel really isolated and um, worried. And that's, I did not even hear that under Trump. So I, I, I do think that that's kind of, that's telling about what kind of moment we're in. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The only, I sent this to Tammy and then she ignored my text, but I, the only, the most <laughs> anti-escalation and the most anti-war candidate right now is Vivek Ramaswamy. <laughs> No, it's true. You know, no, I know, it, but I'm laughing. It really is true. I, I mean, and it's talk. yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. That sense of fear really is. Uh, I don't know. I guess that is the actual important chilling effect, right? Um, outside of whatever sort of games that or palace intrigue that's happening within the media. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I that will last when you know yeah. when everybody else oh, sort now. of says okay we maybe we you know maybe we overshot a little bit here right like that that part will not go away. Um, Jay, I'm wondering if as we as we wrap up, if we could read this news bit that May just sent us, which is about yet another death of a journalist in Palestine. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, Rosie, do you want to read this? Yeah. Four days ago, we interviewed Roshdi Siraj for a Washington Post story about the 23 journalists killed in the Israel-Gaza war. Roshdi, also a journalist, spoke of his late Palestinian colleagues with pride. Today, we discovered that Roshdi was killed in an Israeli strike on his home. That was written by Jennifer Hassan, um, a reporter with Washington Post. Oi. Well, thanks for coming on, Rosie, to talk about all this stuff with us. Thank you so much for having me. I, I appreciate being able to talk to you guys about this. Okay, well, thank you for listening to the show. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at time to say goodbyepod at gmail.com um, or you can reach us on Twitter at TTSGpod. Um, yeah, this will be a continuing conversation that we have over the length of this conflict. It feels like, you know, Nothing else is as important. Um, yes, until next week, uh, Tammy, I'll talk to you later. And Rosie, thank you for being on. Bye, Jay. Thank you, guys. Bye.